Hello and welcome to Lost in Sci-Fi and Fantasy. I'm your host, Leo, and this week we are talking about Blade Runner, the final cut, specifically. Which is a bit of an odd one, because it had so many different versions of the film. There was, at least according to the internet, there was about seven uh, known versions, five of them being the most one. There's the, um, the like, pre-edit, the, like beta test of the film i guess the prototype that's what it's called then there was the theatrical cut then there was the director's cut and the final cut and then another one that i can't quite remember right now but there there were a lot of different cuts of this film and each of them kind of made the film very different uh the two that i know a bit more about is the director's cut and the final cut as well as a little bit of the weirdness that was the theatrical cut supposedly all of the five well-known versions you can get on the 30th anniversary like complete collector's edition blu-ray of the film and i think that's pretty cool overall but yeah the original version had a weird like explanatory narration by Harrison Ford that people did not like. They, I think the style that the studio was going for was like a, a noir scenario, which I guess you could look... If you look at the film, you could kind of see it being noir, but having narration makes it go from interesting sci-fi world to weird, cheesy, pulp noir. So, you know, it ends up bringing it down many levels. But, yeah, so overall... I think it's very interesting, the history of the film. The director's cut was made with the director's input, but not with his direct involvement, supposedly. The final cut is his full creative control from beginning to end cut of the film, which is supposedly, like, the best version, as far as I can tell. Though I do have some issues with it myself. Uh, I'm going to keep the, the story recap relatively light this week uh, because one the film is relatively slow and is broken down into kind of two relatively simple plots uh, you follow the a plot which is the one following deckard the blade the titular blade runner uh, and then the b plot is following this group of replicants now the a plot is deckard has been pulled out of retirement you know classic cop thing He's been pulled out of retirement to pull one last, to solve one last crime, and it's because there was a bit of a whoopsie daisy. This group of replicants have slipped their bonds and somehow made their way to Earth, which in this world, the replicants have been made. They look so human that they are almost indistinguishable from humans, save for the fact that, at least in the current version, they do not have proper emotional responses to things and so there's the Voigtkampf test which is to try to determine whether or not you they are or aren't a replicant so he has to hunt down these replicants and retire them is the terminology and so he sets out to do that though he gets sidetracked a lot in fact for a kind of weird sci-fi detective movie he doesn't do a whole lot of detecting 
he just kind of stumbles into some stuff sometimes and it, it it's a bit weird anywho so that's that's kind of the a plot the b plot is following said replicants that have escaped and they are they're tr- trying to find a way to extend their life because replicants the main backup system that the company put in to kind of keep control of the replicants was to put a time limit on them they can only survive for about four years and so what they what their kind of motivation and goal is is to extend their life so that they can just live their life and yeah and that's kind of it we don't really follow them a whole lot we follow Deckard mostly while he is going around trying to find these replicants he goes to an apartment and finds in the tub uh, snake scales at least it turns out to be snake scales and these photographs in a drawer after having a spark of uh, imagination I guess he decides to to take a really really close look at the photographs and spots one of the replicants I believe it's hard to tell exactly what's going on in the scene especially since the the amount of photo manipulation that they're able to do is weird because it feels like he like is able to move it in a semi 3d space to be able to look around corners that the original photograph wouldn't see i think it it's weird but he goes to this club where he comes across the a replicant who has a snake that is it's a, it's a fake snake he he followed a he followed the scale to the dealer, the snake dealer, uh, and then the snake dealers kind of said who it was sold to, and it's used by this guy's performers, and so he goes in trying to pretend to be a wellness person, and you know ma- making sure that she's being treated fairly and whatnot at the job, and he puts on this weird silly voice which I. I found funny. Uh, and when he's talking to her, he's looking around, just checking stuff. And then she comes out, asks, okay, well, if I am being you know, treated unfairly, who do I go to? And he's like, oh, just go to me. And then she attacks him and runs away. He gives chase, shoots her. And this is where we find out that he, he gets a bit sh- shooken up about having to kill the replicants. He, he'll do it. But he doesn't like it. Uh, at this time, he just kind of stumbled into another replicant. Uh, the one that we see at the very beginning of the film. And he he gets shot by someone else. who uh, By Rachel, who is also a replicant. Uh, who, at the beginning, when we meet her, doesn't know that she's a replicant, but uh, Deckard ends up straight up telling her, yeah, you're you're a replicant, your memories are implanted, nothing about you is is real. Uh, but, yeah. So, after going back to his house, there's a weird situation, and then he ends up following a lead he was given down down the line to this 
Anyway, he follow, he ends up following a lead to this hotel where two of the replicants are staying, and he gets attacked by one of them, kills her, and then the final one comes in, and there's this really weird... It, it ends very weird. Basically, this last replicant kind of just snaps and just kind of goes crazy. I, I don't really follow what, what was going on with his mind, I guess. Uh... Before we continue on with the conclusion of the film, let's kind of roll back and see what the replicants were up to. Basically, they, on their mission to try to extend their life, kind of work their way up certain manufacturers of the replicants. So they visit this one guy who's hanging out in extreme cold storage, making eyeballs, and they ask him, answer our questions. Can you fix us? Can you do this? And he's like, I just make eyes. I... I can't really help you. So he's they he's able to direct them to another guy named Seymour, who's the the one that actually like manufactured the the like bodies, I guess, or designed the bodies. I guess he he bioengineered the bodies or something. I don't know. It, it's this world gets a little bit weird the further you dig in. Anywho, so they pull this weird ploy to try and infiltrate Seymour's apartment. So the remaining lady one just kind of hides out in his garbage until he comes by. She is spooked and panics, uh, accidentally breaks a window in the guy's car, and he invites her up to his uh, apartment just to hang out. Where it's revealed, you know, he makes his own friends. He's a 25-year-old guy who has a disorder that makes his glands age rapidly. So he looks a lot older than he actually is. Uh, she gets Roy, the main replicant, to come on in. And the guy had already pegged that they're replicants, but he has an affinity to them because, well, he helped design them. Uh, after a little bit of coercion, they convince him to take them to the main guy, his boss, the, the man who is running the, I think, Tyrell Corporation. And they do, he, he agrees, takes them there, and the, the main man says, there's nothing I can do. We have tried everything to try and extend your life, potentially, and it just, it, it doesn't work. We can't. I'm sorry. Uh, in a fit of sadness, the main guy kills uh, Tyrell and Seymour. Then that that's when Deckard goes on his, his hunt to kill the remaining two replicants. He successfully, again, kills the one, and... He, he tries to, he does a smart thing. He tries to, like, post up to try and shoot the final guy, but he misses. <laughs> and then, for some reason, Roy, like, he strips down to his boxers, his boxer briefs, and he just starts sprinting around the house like a madman, taunting Deckard. He ends up pulling Deckard's hand through a wall and breaks some of his fingers, gives him his gun back, which I guess, you know, was nice. <laughs> and then continues the chase 
Deckard climbs onto the roof of the apartment building, uh, and Roy follows. Deckard tries to jump across onto another building, but he doesn't quite make it, so he's, like, hanging off the ledge. Roy has acquired a dove somewhere at some point, somehow. Uh, he successfully makes the jump across and lets Deckard, you know, pulls Deckard back up and then kind of gives his little spiel about, you know, about his life. He's seen many things and all of his memories are going to be gone because he's about to die. And then he dies and releases the dove in a very, I guess, poetic uh, thing. Then the guy that's been hanging out with Deckard on and off throughout the film, who keeps coming up to him and saying, Bruce, or Brian? One of those. I think it's Brian. His, his boss. And says, are you done? And Deckard replies, finished. So he tosses him his gun again and says, well, it's a shame she's, she can't live. But, you know, everyone's got to die sometime, pretty much. And Deckard rushes back home after a quick pit stop at the hospital to get his fingers set. He finds her in his bed. He's worried that she's dead, but she's not. And he goes to run off with her. And as he's leaving, you know, he's checking the hallways and whatnot. He sees on the ground an origami unicorn. Now this guy has been doing little origami things throughout the entire film. It's kind of, I guess, his his signature thing in this film. And it, show, it shows that he was there and pretty much, I guess, is saying, I'm going to just kind of let you go. Go leave. But there's a, she's going to die eventually anyway. Because replicants have an extremely short lifespan. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, that's the film. It's... A bit odd at times, very slow at times. Uh, I went to check the time at one point and saw that there were still 44 minutes left. Now, this isn't really that long of a movie. It's only about an hour and 50 minutes, so it's not long at all. But it can feel like it's dragging at points because a whole lot of nothing is happening for good chunks of it. Overall, I would say it is an interesting movie. There are some very disjointed shots, like... One moment he'll be standing in one room, and then the next he'll be sitting in a car doing nothing. He, he, it just hops around a lot sometimes. And at the very end as well, it's there's a lot of slow motion implemented, where he he's just kind of sitting there staring at the guy who's now uh, the Roy who died. And it's just it's in slow motion for some reason. Don't know why. Anywho. So, some some things. I, I will say, I loved the set designs. I loved, you know, the use of miniatures and whatnot. And everything looked nice. And just the amount of stuff that they made for the film. I love the crunchy feel of... Like, even if it looks janky in an 80s film, at least you know it's there. It's nice. <laughs> So, the, the, you know, I loved that. The overall plot's a little bit hit or miss. Like, the question of, like, the Tyrell Corporation's security is awful. They let a rep... So, they were worried that the replicants would try to get a 
jobs in the Tyrell Corporation for, you know, to infiltrate it and, you know, talk to the guy or kill the guy, you know, which ended up happening anyway. Uh, and they implemented any, like, new people coming in, they had to do the Voight-Kampf test. And that's what the movie opens with. And, you know, so they caught, caught one of the replicants. But the fact that, one, he was able to get in, two, he snuck a gun in, and three, he was able to then kill the guy that performed the test in the middle of a busy office and leave. He, he he got out. He he wasn't captured or anything. He just left. So that's the security's terrible. Also, there's the question of if replicants are illegal on Earth. Now, the reason why they're illegal is a little bit neither here nor there. It's a bit weird. It's it's basically because they're so human like yeah, so they're illegal, uh, which, which which means that, you know they're perfectly fine off of Earth, but on Earth they're illegal. But the th problem is the Tyrell Corporation that manufactures them are based on Earth. So, is there like a, an exception for them? Technically, no, because Rachel is then technically a target of the Blade Runners. Because he, she was, she's on Earth. But it's because she's part of the Tyro. She's a new form of replicant. She's one that's supposed to have memories that can actually have emotional connections and whatnot. You know, she's supposed to be a better, better replicant. But my question is, why are they still manufacturing replicants? Well, the answer is because they put an artificial timer on them. Which, theoretically, they could fix, likely, earlier on. They can't fix it for, like, established replicants, but they could fix it for future versions. But they... I don't know, the fact that they're still manu allowed to manufacture them is a bit weird. It, and the fact that they're allowed to manufacture them on Earth is a bit weird. But then there's also all these advertisements saying that you can, you know, stake out a better life off-world, like on Mars or wherever. You can stake out a, a better life out in space. But the thing is, they're pretty much ceding space to the replicants in a way. Because they're pretty much saying, okay, if there's an, a replicant uprise, at least they'll, it'll be out there. Not here. Kind of thing. And it, it's a bit weird. But yeah, then there's the dangling questions, the things that people have, you know, looked at and theorized over for decades since the movie came out. The things that technically aren't as lingered on as you might think in the films. So there was the question of, is Deckard a replicant? Because Rachel asks him, if he has done the void comp test himself. And he doesn't answer because he pretty much kind of passes out. And that's kind of where people got the question of, oh, well, maybe Deckard's a replicant. But it's kind of shown that, no, he he isn't. Because in the sequel, he, he appears. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, 
it's it's a bit odd. It's a bit odd. The I thought that there was more significance to the origami in the film. Like I thought going into I thought it was like a sign of like maybe they're a replicant or something. I don't know. But it's not really, I guess. I don't know, it's weird. Anywho. Yeah, I think it overall it's it's a pretty good movie. I would recommend it. I can't really talk about whether or not I would recommend the other versions of the film as I haven't seen them. But for this specific version of the film, yeah, I would I would recommend it. It's a bit slow at times, but it is an interesting story. It introduces a really cool, you know, cyberpunk sci-fi world. You know, and I, I can see why people kind of latched on to the the cyberpunkiness of it. It's a weird, dirty, grimy world where people are just hanging out. Though I will say it does feel a lot like the other kind of similar films that came out around the same time. Uh, your, your Judge Dredd, your Total Recall. You know, it 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 has the feel of those two, at least in spirit. You you can definitely tell it's a it's an early to mid '80s sci-fi action film. <laughs> but anyway, with that, uh, I know that a lot of these episodes have been getting kind of short, but some of them there's not a whole lot to talk about because Blade Runner, while iconic, when you actually look at it as it is, it is a relatively light film. You know, two relatively simple plots that don't really interact a whole lot. And then it's over. <laughs> and I did like the fact that you could you could really see why Deckard retired. He he hates killing replicants. So yeah. <laughs> anyway. With that, we can go ahead and move on in to this week's challenge update. Alright, so it is update time. When we last talked, uh, I had just vetoed the uh, terrible, terrible book, Shadows of the Empire, and I had decided to, you know, give myself the punishment of, uh, you know, having to wait until that Monday to actually properly begin the book, as well as forcing myself to read the Kane Chronicles books and whatnot. So, you know, to where we're at kind of a, a much more tense, tight game. Because my three uh, backup weeks, my emergency weeks, are now taken up by Kane Chronicles. But I have also spaced it out differently than some might expect. I have placed the Kane Chronicles um, in a bit of a weirdish way. I believe I put... One at the end, I think at the end of, no, hmm, okay, I think I put one before the um, thing, the Trials of Apollo, then I put one kind of later, I think after the Trials of Apollo, maybe, and then I put one before Magnus Chase, I think. Maybe I can't fully remember where I put them. They, they but they, they, they are in, they're in 
the lineup now. I have spread them out because of a few reasons. Um, one, if I, I, don't, I just kind of don't want to sit there reading a whole nother series in the middle of somewhere. I just wanted to space it out a bit. <laughs> and two, I feel that since it's not really all that connected to Percy Jackson, there are, I found out though, some Kane Chronicles Percy Jackson crossover stories uh, that have happened. But overall, I, I, I'm not going to try to hunt those down and read them because I don't need to right now. And so I'm not going to. Uh, I'm going to just stick with the Kane Chronicles as is for now. And I think that that's going to be for the best. Anyway, uh, other parts of the update. So I have started and finished The Lost Hero in this week. I started it on Monday as per my punishment. I started it on Monday as per my punishment and I was able to finish it Friday morning bright and early. So kind of what happened. So I was able to finish it bright and early Friday morning. And so the way it kind of worked is I set out a goal of reading about eight chapters a day, right? And as I got closer and closer to uh, Friday, I read a little bit more each day just to kind of eat into the you know, subsequent days. Then I woke up early on Friday around eight in the morning to finish off the rest of the book. And, and that's what I did. And then I immediately recorded and posted the update video which was fun. <laughs> and yeah, so that's just kind of how it worked out on on Friday. And then later on Friday, I started The Son of Neptune and am currently almost, but not quite, halfway through. In fact, I'm, I literally, a few minutes ago, like before I started recording this update, I finished the 200th page of Son of Neptune and it is currently Sunday. So my hope, eh, my hope is that I might be able to finish the Son of Neptune by Tuesday, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep things kind of open and say about Wednesday. I'm going to have a few things kind of on my mind and a few other things I need to do between now and then. So, you know, it, it might end up expanding how much I, I'm going to have to read. Uh, as for how I'm enjoying it, I'm enjoying these books quite a bit. I, I forgot, I, like, reading, <laughs> reading The Lost Hero, I have completely forgotten what it's like to read the Heroes of Olympus series. It's, it's a weird feeling, because the first two books don't really feel like they fit with the rest of the series, if that, if that makes sense. Because the first two books are the introductory books, the... The whole kind of conceit of the first two books are that Jason and Percy have swapped places uh, at the behest of Hera because Hera is playing a, a long con, a gamble of sorts. She's playing the long odds. And she's hoping that by swapping the two most powerful demigods in each camp, or the the... <laughs> the most powerful demigod from each camp and kind of giving them places of power and respect in each other's camp, it'll make the merging of the two come a bit easier. 
but it's a little bit uh <laughs> it's a bit shaky as you might expect but yeah it's it's good but i tend to forget as time goes on what the first two books individual quests are because in the grand scheme of the entirety of the five total books it's kind of irrelevant because from after this book on it's one big quest they are on the quest with some like side journeys happening in between so yeah that's kind of how i end up feeling about the first two books is that you know they're fun and interesting and it's it's really sweet to see percy remembering uh annabeth even with his memory missing and that being his kind of thing to hold on to to get through the uh, situation it's kind of nice uh but the book i should let's let's go and also talk about how these books are kind of written and divided in in themselves so the book these books are written from multiple perspectives each book and each book save for maybe one i think uh they have a pattern to how they read so the first book the lost hero is broken up into jason piper and leo chapters the jason piper and leo chapters are each they each have two chapters each cycle so it goes two jasons two pipers two leos repeat and that's the pattern it follows all the way to the end of the book yeah fun <laughs> then with the son of neptune book they changed the pattern which is kind of annoying because it would have been perfectly serviceable for them to keep the same pattern but they instead uh, rick rorden decided that eh we'll give each character more kind of wiggle room to to stretch out each section so it goes we'll give each character kind of some wiggle room to stretch out in each section so for son of neptune it goes four chapters each person so it's four percy's four hazels and four franks repeat uh and yeah so each book kind of has its pattern and it tends to stick to that pattern again i think save for one book where they kind of jump off that pattern a little bit which gets a little bit annoying but meh anyway so overall i'm i'm really enjoying the books the the main quest for the lost hero is that they have to free hera and you know it's it's a big kind of mystery as to like where she is because of the the whole jason's memory missing and whatnot and she's at a place that's really important to his memory the only person that he has kind of locked in his memory kind of like kind of layered under his memory is thalia because that is his sister and she is the key to being able to complete their quest and actually to so that he can go regain his memory but otherwise he doesn't remember anything else from his past until he well he frees hera afterwards they are able to start kind of he's able to start kind of building his memories back and 
actually, as they get closer to Hera as well, he's starting to slowly regain his memories bit by bit, and he's not happy with it at all. <laughs> because he's learning as he's going that, oh, oh, I'm from another camp, and there's a lot of danger that comes inherent with that. Uh, my biggest issue with both of these books so far are that it's the everybody has a secret plot line. Each, in both of these books, everyone has a secret. So in The Lost Hero, Jason's secret is that he's Roman. He doesn't know it because he has amnesia. So it's not as big of a problem, but the re reoccurring thing in his chapters is some someone asks him a question and he just says, I don't know. It happens every single time. Because yeah. people, for some reason, keep forgetting, this boy has amnesia. The answer is, I don't know. It's always going to be, I don't know. So why do we keep asking? I don't know. <laughs> then Piper. So hers is the... I'm going to have to betray my friend's arc. So she, being a daughter of... Uh, a, her being a daughter of Aphrodite, she comes with a lot of baggage of, one, trying to live up to the glory of the previous head counselor before, while also being pretty much... <laughs> harassed constantly by the new head counselor, Drew. Uh, but she has this problem of she has to betray the people on the quest in order to save her dad. And when she learns about Selena Beauregard and her betrayal, she's like, oh, fuck, I have to do the same thing. <laughs> I have to I have to become a traitor, a spy, a, a person that everyone's going to hate. And the repeating thing throughout her, her chapters, especially in her early chapters, almost every other page is her saying, stop being happy. You're going to have to betray them. They're going to hate you. It's just going to be another group of people to hate you. And it's just like, just enjoy a moment. For, you know, forget your duties for a bit and just live in the moment for a while. Who knows? And when she learns that the people that she's going on the quest with are Jason and Leo, she can't really bring herself to properly, you know, betray them. She thought it was going to be a bunch of nobodies, not two people that, you know, she she wasn't sure like, like that she had implanted memories with. Because that's actually something that's not really brought up in the story, at least not in this book. The question of, is their friendship real? The answer between uh, Jason and everyone else is technically, no, your your friendship isn't real. Uh, those were just implanted memories to kind of get you guys together for the overall uh, mission. But the question is more, is the friendship between Piper and Leo real? Because technically their kind of joining factor was Jason. So it's kind of a weird scenario that's never really discussed at all is whether or not, you know, Piper and Leo would have been friends. It doesn't fully matter because after, you know, even though they understood that the memories for the like last three months were mostly fake, you know, they, they still get along fine. Uh, 
But yeah, so then there is Leo's story. His secret is well, his he keeps kind of layering on his secrets, uh, but then he's also like the first one to let them go most of the time. His secrets are that he can cause fire, like he can make fire. Um, he discovered a secret bunker in in the camp, and uh, he feels that he might have killed his mother. Yeah, you know, there's the possibility of that, and th- there's that, and it's he's probably my favorite character in this these five books, this series, because um, he just kind of has the more interesting story. Piper, you know, has the whole "I have a rich dad, but you know he doesn't pay attention to me," where Leo has the "I might have killed my mom." Whoops. Uh, Hera's been harassing me f- for, since I was a baby. Um, oops. <laughs> and then on top of that is the fact that Gaia visited him as a baby, or like as a child, I think around eight years old, and killed his mom. Like Gaia's just straight up killed his mom. And the thing is, it also leans into the whole weird scenario that villains tend to always rely on the you're not doing anything to me now but i have information that tells me that you're going to do something to me so i'm going to give you motivation <laughs> so you know in in this specific case it is it is uh Gaia gets told information that Leo is going to be one of the seven to try and, you know, put Gaia back to sleep. And so she visits Leo, kills his mother, and tells him that the whole purpose of her visit is to demoralize him, to, you know, beat him down, to make him scared of attacking her. But all she does is provide him the proper motivation to want to attack her, you know, because fucking logic, it, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta love villain logic sometimes, it's, it's funny, <laughs> but yeah, again, Leo's is kind of the best one, Piper's, I would say, is the worst one, though it gets better near the end, and Jason's is fine, I know that his story, I believe, gets a little bit worse as the stories go because he kind of becomes a bit more of a dick but otherwise um otherwise it's fine uh it's fine uh moving on to son of neptune where i'm currently in it it's once again it's a everybody has secrets thing percy's is that he's from the greek camp but he has an amnesia so he doesn't know <laughs> uh Hazel's is that she's dead, or at least she was dead. She had a similar-ish scenario to Nico, who eventually found her and, you know, started helping her out. Uh, She was born in around the 1940s during about World War II, uh, and she was killed. Her, Her mother took her to Alaska, and I... I haven't gotten there in the book yet, but I believe her mom kills her, or someone kills her, and she ends up in, I believe, 
the fields of Asphotel, I think is what they're called. It's, it's the, the purgatory of the Greek underworld where Nico finds her. Nico was looking for Bianca and learned that she had chosen Rebirth. So, um, finding a runner-up prize... So Nico was in the underworld looking for Bianca and learned that she chose Rebirth because uh, she was hanging out in Elysium because she died a heroic death. She chose Rebirth and was thus no longer able to actually, you know, communicate with Nico. And so he uh, decided to take Hazel under his wing after finding her wandering the fields. And... The reason, so the reason that he was looking for Bianca, I believe, again, I haven't really gotten there. They're kind of piecemealing the, the story together as they love to do. Uh, the reason that he was looking for Bianca was to once again try to resurrect her. Even though he learned that lesson of don't do that uh, back in the, the fourth book, in... In this one, it's because of the the Gaia loophole that's happening at the moment, where the doors of death have been forced open, and if you want to leave, you just kind of can. So she, but she she wasn't there. Uh, so Nico takes Hazel and brings her back, takes her to Camp Jupiter, to where uh, she does okay. <laughs> then. We have Frank. Because that's kind of it for Hazel's story at the moment, is that she's she's dead, and their mission is to free death, uh, which, you know, is a bit of a worry for her. But so far, no, no potential betrayals uh, in the stories, except for technically Percy. He keeps getting told by Gaia that, you know, serve me if you, if you, you know, don't join, and, or serve me if you do kind of thing. Because she plans on, you know, tricking and using Percy for something. Again, I haven't really gotten there. They're, they've just about started their quest. It's taken way too long. <laughs> it take These books do, since they're trying to take advantage of their longer, you know, page count and whatnot, they take a lot longer to get the quest going. Because both of them have to do introductory work. So you end up, in this case, almost 200 pages into the book, and they're just starting the quest. Especially since you have to do kind of three personality introductions. You have to introduce, in the first book, Jason for two chapters, Piper for two chapters, and Leo for two chapters. And you kind of have to settle the reader into each personality in those two chapters. In this one... And, like, and that was fine, because that's a total of six chapters, which isn't too, too bad. But then we have... <laughs> then we have the Son of Neptune, where each character gets four chapters of introduction. It takes 16 chapters before we're set off. Yeah, it takes... 12 chapters before we, you know, have been introduced fully to each character and their personality and their weird secret, you know? Because, like, for Frank, 
Frank's secret is one, he doesn't know who his dad is until the end of his uh, little, his introductory, you know, four things. His dad turns out to be Mars, or Ares, if you prefer. And he's upset about that. He was hoping for Apollo, because Apollo's all about archery and whatnot, and so he was, and he's really good at archery. But then he learns that his dad was was Mars, and he was not happy about that. But, you know, he, he moves on. Uh, his other secret is that his life force is tied to some firewood. If the firewood if the firewood is burned up, he dies. That's that's his other secret. So yeah, it's it's uh it's not looking too good for Frank. Overall, I think Frank and Hazel's stories are a little bit better than Piper and Leo's, you know, overall. And also the the Roman camp does seem a lot more interesting. It's a lot, run a lot more militaristically. It's interesting to see the like dynamic and the fact that they're able to keep the campers safe enough to where a lot of them are able to actually grow up and live in a city near the camp that's also protected by the camp. So, you know, it's kind of interesting to see that that kind of dynamic. But what's also a bit weird, so in the Percy Jackson and the Olympians books, they overall are there for like, like Percy, I think before finding out that he's the son of Poseidon, was there for about, I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe anywhere from one week to a couple of weeks before he finally went on his quest. In the lot. In The Lost Hero, he's been there, like, they were there for maybe, like, I'm going to say a day or two. I think it, it kind of comes down to they were they were there for, like, a day. And they left on the next day. And the same thing happens in... In the son of Neptune, but to like the nth degree, because a lot more happens, and the path to acceptance for him is a lot more troublesome. Plus, they do have to introduce a whole brand new camp that, you know, is a lot different in comparison to the other camps. Yeah. Yeah, so overall, I, I I remember enjoying the Heroes of Olympus a lot more, partially because of the fact that it's one big quest, essentially. Even the two introductory quests are heavily tied to the the specific um great prophecy, or the prophecy of seven. Whereas in the Percy Jackson and the Olympians book while the overall plot is kind of bubbling underneath the surface, it's not quite nearly as interconnected as this these series of books. Because the first series of books, like the, the first book in the Percy Jackson and Olympians series, 
its only connections are like a few light references to Kronos and then the betrayal at the end. Whereas I think the overall plot of the Lost Heroes quest is much more deeply tied to the end quest of the Heroes of Olympus. As well as the fact that from the next book, Mark of Athena, on, it's just that quest. Again, with some like kind of side quests happening along the way, but for the most part, it's just that quest. And I like that. But I think that we're kind of good talking about that for now. Uh, again, my goal is to try to finish it on Wednesday and start on Mark of Athena. We'll see how my plans go. I have a lot of stuff to do still, forever, and a lot of information that I'm waiting on. It's getting tiresome. But, you know, this week I should learn a lot of stuff, hopefully. We'll see. Anyway. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you guys enjoyed this, uh, please feel free to check out the other stuff I do. I've been posting uh, as of well, as of last Wednesday, I'll be posting um, new episodes of Republic Heroes every week on Wednesday, and uh, yeah, <laughs> so feel free to check that out. Anywho, thank you guys so much for listening, and I will talk to you guys next week. Goodbye.